Hi, I'm Hedgeye's founder, Keith McCullough. Thanks for listening to this real conversation. If you like what you hear, you will love our investing research. We bring transparency, accountability, and actionable investing ideas to investors big and small. I'll put our investing process and team up against anyone in the world. Please visit Hedgeye.com to subscribe and learn a better way to invest. I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome to another Real Conversation. I've had this gentleman on multiple times. He deserves to be. He's enlightening, educational. He's got his own framework. Uh, Diego Paria, welcome uh, to a Real Conversation. Thanks for spending some time with me. My pleasure. Thank you, Keith. It's good to see you. The um, the first topic I, we mentioned, I mentioned it quickly before we went live here, because uh, I, I, I just can't not ask you about it, given the anti-bubbles for those of you that don't know, Diego uh, is the author of a book called The Anti-Bubbles. He runs Quad Quadriga Asset Management. But because um, you know, I've been calling this the mother of all bubbles, but the, the most recent uh, one that I've been paying attention to are these zero days to expiration options and the manifestation uh, embedded therein. On Thursday, it was the biggest call volume day in U.S. history. Uh, it was the biggest options day in U.S. history. I think 68 million options traded um, on the call side were 40 million of those things. And uh, an increasing percent, in some days 45-50% of those are actually zero days to expiration options. So I just want to get your, your quick take on that. Now look, we were half joking that the, the casino has gone into the, into the next phase. No, it's, uh, <laughs> if you wanted to, to trade uh, noise, it doesn't get any any closer than that if you're if you're trading literally within a few hours so you know i've always thought of in some ways trading and macro you know there's an element of of chess you know you're playing long term you're playing uh, uh you know a few moves ahead and and there's also an element of, of poker right and uh, just playing the hand so this does feel like this poker element of, of playing your hand on a day by day on something that obviously is is pretty random and um, playing out on, on pure spec positioning. So, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, to, to call that investing uh, is, is questionable. And as always, the, the middleman might be in a, in a stronger position. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing to watch. I and mean, it's not going away, at least uh, not through regulation anytime soon or... You know, people are, have ostensibly made some money doing it or they wouldn't do it every day. It's not just people, it's machines and everything else. But you've talked about the new paradigm that we're in. Can you maybe, not to put you know, zero days to, you know, to expiry into, into your new paradigm definition, but you know, just taking a step back, because I think a lot of people um, don't really have a view, uh, certainly not one that they're invested in, in terms of the structural differences, the secular setup, within the cycle, a lot of the shorter term cycle stuff is obviously there, but you call this a, you think we're in a new paradigm, which would suggest that that's going to take some time to play out. Yeah, look, I think the, uh, we are, in my view, in a new paradigm, uh, which is going to be uh, basically dominated by high inflation, high volatility and, and high risk. In some ways, is almost uh, you know, the opposite of what we experienced in, in the last decade. And uh, it's driven, I think, if you, you take the anti-bubble framework and we look at the thesis that, uh, you know, every time there's a problem, uh, it's been addressed by central banks and governments in the same way. You know, we, we didn't, uh, you know, the abuse of monetary and fiscal policies 
uh, are not solving the problems. All they've done is uh, delay uh, the problem through spending and, and debt. They have uh, transferred the problem through monetary and fiscal, with a uh, monetary, uh, you know, currency wars um, and, and trade wars. Uh, they have uh, uh, transformed the problem into inflation and, and unfortunately inequality and, and, and its byproducts. And it's enlarging the, the problem. Uh, it's not a zero-sum game. We end up with, with bubbles too big to fail and systemic risks. And so I think the monetary and fiscal abuse that effectively I would summarize the last decade as the transformation of risk-free interest into interest-free risk, which was that uh, tremendous process where we were just crazy you know, taking, uh, building the house of the roof. I want my 2%, how do I get this through, you know, duration and, and selling uh, credit and volatility. And this desperate search for yield uh, in some ways, you know, led us to, to, to a point where this was all built on the expectation that uh, there was no inflation, rates would stay low forever, investors are stupid and will continue to, to refinance the thing. And, and in that sense, uh, the bluff's been called. And I think we're in a situation now where the central banks are, in some ways, trapped by, by this beast of their own creation, which is, you know, bubbles and inflation. And it's going to be tricky. If you abuse that, then you might uh, have to pay back. And I think these dynamics are, uh, you know, the, the rules of, of the game and engagement are, are, are changing. And uh, I think this new paradigm, again, the, the, it will be dominated by or be almost the opposite of what the previous decade was. I think, I mean, I think we could quite literally like spend the rest of the conversation just going through all three of those buckets, but and want to get to some other things as well, but it's certainly worth the time. You know, when you just, let's do inflation first. High inflation, I mean, I think everybody's agreed to agree because you just look backwards and uh, inflation peaked, not everywhere, by the way, but um, in, in some big places like the U.S., guys, if you show slide uh, 15 in the current macro deck, you can see the inflation you know, peaking at nine and slowing to six something. And really, we have it slowing to a very high level. Now, because you said high inflation, I'm assuming you're talking about levels. Um, is, that, is, that, is that correct? I mean, that would be double, obviously. We're slowing to the double of the prior cycle high in the U.S. Well, actually, the, the view is that inflation is, is pretty much uh, structural. If you think about mo the monetary aspects of inflation, let's take for example, Japan as a, as a good case study. You know, you, you're talking about this monetary and fiscal abuse effectively leading to decades of interest rates that were artificially low at zero or even negative. Uh, you take advantage of that as a government through basically uh, building levels of debt that are, uh, you know, uh, totally uh, unsustainable um, uh, at, at normal levels of interest rates. This happens and you're able to do that and you're encouraged to do that uh, at those artificial levels of interest rates. But then things happen, right? As I said earlier, people were buying those JGBs on the expectation that yields were still low forever, that perhaps the enemy was deflation, not even inflation, and that investors will continue to refinance this. Uh, what happens with yield curve control, and I think this is an extraordinarily important uh, term to understand. I don't think people yet are paying enough attention, but in some ways, everybody's familiar with QE. QE was the mechanism by which, you know, Mr. Powell, here's 120 billion a month, go and spend them. And uh, and, and he did. And <laughs> basically that led to interest rates being artificially low, to yields being artificially low, valuations being artificially high. So in some ways we could argue that QE created the bubbles. Well, yield curve control is the mechanism that prevents the bubbles from imploding. And by setting in the case of Japan, uh, yields at call it 25 basis points on the 10 year, 
you know, as things start to happen in the US and everywhere else in the world and yields go up, the as frogs in this boiling water start to, to question, you know, am I really getting compensated? And the issue with uh, yield curve control is that it's totally artificial. And you know, if investors start to flock off the uh, fixed income and yields start to go up, mm-hmm. effectively it starts to put tremendous pressure. And the irony of the thing is that the only way to prevent that, uh, those yields getting out of control and potentially putting the, the debt bubble at risk is by printing more, not less. Yeah. And is that printing that effectively contains the credit bubble but it creates this tremendous pressure on the currency. So we saw how dollar yen last year went from you know 115 all the way to 150, and then uh, the expectations of Euchre control and widen in some ways release it. But I think the damage is already done. And uh, my view on inflation is that the only way to prevent some of these uh, gross misallocation, these big bubbles uh, in credit and others to, to implode is through more, not less printing. And that's why in some ways, I think that uh, I use the analogy that, you know, if, if investing was a video game, I'd probably have three levels. You know, level one is, uh, can you make money in nominal terms? Mm-hmm. Keith, here's $100. Can you return me 102 103 We've been playing that game for decades, right? Inflation was negligible. Now, I think this uh, we're in level two. And, and it's important to understand that inflation is no, no longer negligible. Your 102 103 are actually losing money in real terms. And uh, eventually we'll have level three, which is can you make money in real tax in real terms after taxes? But I think this transition from level one, level two explains a lot, because when you look at the markets and numbers, it looks really rosy in level one. Mm -hmm. You're thinking about stuff in nominal terms. The reality is official inflation is not a fair reflection of the real inflation. I think uh, uh, the actual real inflation that we feel in our pockets is substantially higher. And I think we are decisively in level two of higher uh, inflation and investors will need and require this higher yield. So I think it all comes down to the abuse of decades of monetary and fiscal and how the printing will have to continue and come to the rescue. And that's really what's driving the structural levels of inflation. Of course, there are multiple other drivers, more cyclical that you look at and the war and the bottlenecks and, and plenty of other things in both directions. But for me, the, the fundamental reason why uh, inflation will remain high for the foreseeable future is, is the structural nature of money printing and what will need to be done to, to contain the damage that has already been done. Well, this um, now I could ask like 10 questions based on what you just said. There's a lot in there uh, fully loaded with uh, think of it like a video game. We'll come back to that. But on the BOJ. Uh, I was just—I had to look back on my notes to that day. It was before Christmas, uh, and they kind of ruined it for a lot of currency traders when they had to pivot to that 50 basis points instead of 25 basis points. And I was just trying to remind myself in my notes what they actually had to do relative to what you just said. I mean, they—they they said they're going to do another nine trillion in yen per month through March of 2023. Nine trillion—I mean, a trillion yen obviously isn't what it used to be, but. And in, in, in doing so, you're essentially saying, you know, frog boiling water, that there's only one way for that inflation valve to keep going, and they don't they don't seem to have a problem with that, that inflation, so just keep going. Well, I think that as I was saying, the the damage is is, is perhaps done, and I think the the, the place where I, I the way I'm looking at things in a different way, I'm trying a bit as, as a chess player, I'm trying to stay a little bit ahead of the game. I think the market has taken the 
potential unwind of yield curve control as a positive thing on the yen. And of course, in first order, it is. You know, you're looking at this massive interest rate differential uh, narrowing. And to a certain extent, you get all sorts of, you know, forced and other flows. But I would question that. I think that an, uh, an unwind of yield curve control and for yields to effectively be much more free floating, uh, you could easily have another LDI too, like the UK. Mm. You could have, I mean, think about the amount of hidden leverage and risk that can get accumulated that nobody is fully acutely aware of uh, uh, yet with respect to what, what might have built in. And I think the idea that effectively you, you get as the market is pricing this balance between currency and, and, and credit spreads and, and rates might actually be bad news for the yen and for JGBs. So uh, from my perspective, I think this is, uh, again, you're, you're playing the chess game a little bit further down. And I think the, the, uh, the trade-off and the amount of printing that will need to be to prevent this thing going, um, you know, will, will be very substantial. And, and I think if you think about it and you extrapolate to Europe, uh, when uh, Europe did their first uh, jumbo hike back in the, in the summer with 75 bips, uh, you might first one into positive territory. You might remember that they also introduced the anti-fragmentation tool. And that was really a very strong message from uh, Europe saying, guys, I am hiking rates. I need to fight inflation, but uh, do not mess around with my Spanish or Italian uh, <laughs> friends because I'm going to intervene. And so for me, that was de facto yield curve control. I mean, Japan has had yield curve control for years and years, and it was only tapped for the first time uh, early last year, and that triggered this huge move as the bluff was being called. So I think, yeah. again, yield curve control is not well enough understood. It's already uh, showing its its double edge in uh, sword in, in Japan. I think it ends up badly. And uh, if things get worse, you know, Europe will have 100% to resort to it because, uh, again, this fight of inflation through higher yields uh, can and should not be effectively led to, to, to spread into credit events across southern Europe. And that's kind of the situation we've got ourselves into. Well, that I mean, putting and this is what you're very good at. I mean, putting this longer. So when something happens, you get a point of entropy, you get something that happens big time. And then it's hard for people to go back and put that in the context of history. I mean, what happened in the first half of the year last year, yen dollar, is one of the biggest, well, it's one of the largest crashes of a modern and major currency uh, of our time. You know, at 150 against the dollar, I think, is, is where uh, it stopped. It stopped going down. But now you come all the way back to 130 dollar yen. My signal, actually, interestingly enough, in the last, in the last week, has signaled what I just call lower highs in, in that dollar-yen pair. In other words, the dollar's starting to get less vol against that, so that's a good signal if you're buying dollars against yen. And there's no reason why, that, like use your you know, frog in, in boiling water analogy where that thing doesn't jump again. I mean, we're at materially higher levels in dollar-yen term versus anywhere looking all the way back to when they had interest rates at this level. I think it was back to, to, to have a 10... Uh, a 50 basis point 10-year yield was back in 2015, the last time they saw that. So it's a very, um, it's, it's, it's kind of, I think that this would be one of the, the currency pairs, Diego, that most macro people, if they're oriented using shorter term moving averages, which I don't do, um, you would say, oh, I, I'd short the dollar against the yen here. And you're saying no. And I'm saying I'm interested now in this view of yours. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think something's going to give. 
and uh, you know the pressure and and the bluff's been called, and the idea that you can actually keep yields artificially low uh, forever in an environment where global yields are going up and inflation is an obvious problem, uh, it's it's clear. So Japan's bluff was called, and I think their first reaction uh, is is in principle correct. But I, I do think the damage is is done, and uh, you could you could have this double whammy. And the problem for the people who have abused monetary and fiscal policy is that they will pay for it. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, talk, we talked about it for, it's not like, okay, how do I get out of this? It's like, I'm sorry, you've, you've abused this thing for decades. And, and so I think it's, it's a tricky situation. You know, for, for a long time, we talked about uh, arguably the um, uh, Japanification of the world, right? The, jo- the, the zombies, right? And this dynamic of uh, how the world was going. Well, I would argue that it's more about the Argentinification of the world. Is is people that abuse monetary and fiscal that eventually realize the currency is the ultimate degree of freedom in the system, and as uh, the market realizes these dynamics, you know that uh, you're either going to uh, you know blow up through inflation uh, or credit or both. It's a very nasty um, you know piece. So yeah. uh, I, I think again we're in a situation where this is. Uh, just plain and simply uh, accumulated abuse for for decades of highly artificial settings of artificial low interest rates, you know, uh, barking at the wrong enemy, in this case, uh, deflation and pretending that uh, you can print at infinitum and nothing happens. And uh, and things will happen, you know, starting from the fact that your debt is now at levels that if things normalize, you know, at two, three, four, five percent, Japan is bankrupt, uh, full stop. So you can't let that happen. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that printing coming in, the degree of freedom will be the currency, which means more inflation, which is, means more frogs jumping. So <laughs> it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, it's, it's, it's effect, effectively the cycle accelerates. And that's why, yeah, you could have a volatility. That's why if we go to the second point of high inflation and high volatility, look, this thing's going to be all over the place. It's not a one way street. It's going to be volatile. And it's, it comes from these massive divergences on, and these abuses and these, uh, you know, uh, equilibriums and lack of, which which we have plenty. Yeah, volatility. I mean, volatility when you come from that point of entropy, which is a very appropriate metaphor. Point of entropy being, if you hold, you suppress the volatility of interest rates in Japan for quite literally ever. And I always use this. I don't know if you've ever seen it. You know, you probably don't follow me on Twitter, but I always use Corona. <laughs> you do. Well, thank you. Well, anytime I'm tweeting it, like inside of five in the morning East Coast time, and it's about the BOJ, what's going on? I, I have this picture of Corona, who's like laughing. You know, like like look at me. <laughs> I and his teeth. You know, you can just see it. He's having a blast. You know, um, because he's he's been able to get away with it. Like you said, these people think they're getting away with it. Um, so when people look for the next catalyst. Number one, he's done. He's leaving. So let's just start with that. I mean, it looks like Deputy Governor, I think his name is Amamiya, of, of all the names that you could have for somebody who's going to be sitting in the seat. Amamiya, we got the new guy here. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and it's, it's, I don't, I'm not like an insider on BOJ stuff, but I mean, it looks like nobody else wanted the job, um, and, including Kuroda. And, and, and what I also like to do in macro is take like what I think is a, a proactively predictable assumption. So our GDP number for Q2, which will be reported in April, is negative two and a half. You know, so that's bad relative to where people are set up. But it's it's really bad if you have it w- at the same time that you're changing who's in the seat at the BOJ. You know, when you think about because a negative that kind of a negative GDP number would be very bullish for the dollar and 
any loss or further loss of control with the new guy in the seat, those two things to me, like when you say all that, I, I, that's where I, I, when you're looking for a point of entropy and volatility where it's not just frogs jumping, everything's jumping, um, that to me seems like a reasonable thing to think about. No, absolutely. And and uh, when you think about risk and, and volatility, uh, you know, that's obviously a big driver of uh, value at risk and portfolio construction. But uh, the, the other key drivers are correlations and, uh, and and liquidity. Right. And I think what you might see and some of the opportunities in this space are also as, as correlations break. Mm. Uh, things like, uh, you know, uh, Treasury is flying and JGB is collapsing. Uh, what the implications for rates and FX vol and other things are are very meaningful. So there are plenty of scenarios where, from a you know causality, what drives what, uh, you know, it, it's Japan. I think is a good case study. It's always been on the monetary uh, macro space. As I said, the bluff in some ways is being called. The jury's out. Things are happening. There's a change in in, in governor. And, uh, and unfortunately, some of these dynamics are, uh, you know, they're spiral into, into, you know, from metastable equilibriums into, into other dynamics. So it is, it is uh, uh, something to, to watch carefully. It's a, it's a big economy. Uh, there are obviously, you know, plenty of other variables like huge, you know, uh, foreign savings and flows and, and, and governments and all sorts of uh, manipulation. But uh, I think at the end of the day, you know, one of the, the, the key theses is that, you know, monetary and fiscal without limits do not solve problems. They delay, transfer, transform and enlarge them. And eventually these things show up. I and mean, they show up primarily through inflation and, uh, and currency devaluations, because the other alternative, which is systemic risk, uh, is unacceptable. Yeah. So you will always, always pretend to take the hard route until things get uh, uh, basically systemic and that, and then mommy and daddy come again with the printing and that's why Argentina is where it is and where Turkey is where it is and where all the guys that abuse monetary and fiscal are where they are. The fact that, you know, some of the, uh, you know, the, the, the other guys, the, the G3s, the G5s, you know, might be doing it as well and got away with it doesn't mean that uh, it was it was the right answer or the right solution. I think they're going to be tested and, and that applies to, again, anyone. It's a relative game. Uh, there's a domino effect. And again, crisis, volatility, correlation, liquidity, they all tend to effectively feed into this dynamic. So I, I, this is part of the reason why uh, I believe we're in this new new paradigm of, of high inflation and for sure high volatility. Well, I think, I mean, most people that don't do macro may not see it as clearly as you're articulating it, but and I think you've called it a dollar wrecking ball, um, and correct me if I'm wrong on that, but it's very, Diego, you're very good with these, uh, make, making macro make sense to people that don't stare at it, uh, God forbid, the way that we do all day long. But, um, you know, yeah. despite, I think most technical types, first of all, if you guys show CFTC futures and options data, you can see it. Most technical types, I mean, old wall technical types, 50-day moving average, something trivial, one-factor model, uh, you know, linear assumptions, they, they'd say, oh, the dollar's breaking down. And, and this has been largely a yen euro move against the dollar. It's not, to your point, Argentine peso is down 15% in the last month, despite a dollar that's been consolidating its, its prior strength. You have the Pakistan rupee was down 9% last week alone. But the street is actually positioned long euros, long yens, short dollars. So the positioning, too, is, is quite interesting, you know, when you look at, at, at what you're talking about here. But if you just kind of like just take that a step further, 
that's what you mean. Correct me if I'm wrong, right? If we get the dollar to put in a big, a big higher low here for the cycle, take off again against both the yen and the rest of EM currencies like Argentina. Argentina, if your currency is down 15% and the cost of things nominally are, are, are up anyway, I mean, that's a disaster. Yeah, look, the, the critical thing when I when I talk about the, uh, uh, you're talking about the dollar um, wrecking ball, it's really about, you know, currency wars and yeah. trade wars. Um, if you think about the way currency works, uh, wars worked historically, it was mostly about bigger thy neighbor. So what you did is you said, look, I'm going to be uh, devalue my currency, be you know, effectively artificially cheap. Why? Because I want your investment. I want your savings. I want your technology. I want your employment. I want all of those things because I'm, I'm, I'm just cheaper. And people decide to you know, send their production and the technology and everything to those countries that is, is cheaper. And so that created this dynamic of, look, I'm okay being uh, artificially cheap because I get all these benefits at the expense of potentially having uh, local inflation and, and, and bubbles, right? Uh, when you walked in with, with trade wars, that was sort of checkmate because you end up with, with the negatives. And, and you know the way I, I articulate the trade wars is you want to devalue by 20%, Keith? Cool, but I'm going to tariff you by 20%. <laughs> so effectively, trade wars is a way to neutralize currency wars. But we're in a new phase. This new phase of trade wars is different. It's about... My problem is inflation. I want to export inflation. So when dollar yen goes to from you know 120 to 150, it's not just about. It's also about the impact of let's say oil, right? Oil prices in dollars, oil prices in yen. The actual double whammy that you get through inflation through a relatively stronger dollar or weaker currency, it's brutal and it feeds on itself, right? And that's why I think unlike if you think about the, the interventions we saw early last year from on the FX side, we had actually BOJ, China and and, um, and and Bank of England at some point, they were unilateral interventions. And there's a small detail, but the interventions we saw in the in the late 90s were multilateral. Everybody was like, okay, enough's enough. Let's just do something. We're serious. This time around, the US is looking the other way and saying, sorry, guys, <laughs> you've you've this is self-inflicted. You have this inflation problem. You've been printing too many yen. And guess what? My my um, uh, position is I want to export inflation. That's my big problem. And I'm going to do that through a stronger dollar. And I think uh, when you compound that with the war and energy prices and all sorts of other issues, it was a wrecking ball because it was feeding back into inflation. I think some of these pressures have eased. And pretty much all the themes that drove last year's uh, dollar strength in some ways have vanished, uh, at least for now. But I, I do think that the, the a path of sustained high inflation and how people try to export that inflation and not get hit, it's, it actually feeds on itself. And it's one of the paths in which you can see, you know, some of the distress back in markets. So it's, it's effectively this, uh, you know, persistent inflation, this very high level that not only uh, at the inflation level, but also around inflation expectations, which are now a little bit more under control. Uh, this is the scenario where the dollar really becomes a wrecking ball. It's yeah. when things start to get a little bit more tricky and you really have to export your way out. And the guys that are have abused have really very little defense. And, and you could actually see the dollar going way farther than, than uh, you, you might think because there's nothing to stop it in that scenario. This is, is, is the Argentinian situation you're describing is what what's the floor when you're forced with effectively 
uh, reacting to your crisis with ever ever more printing. So it's a, it's a yeah. very dangerous slope as, as you get into these uh, negative dynamics uh, uh, that, again, lead, lead back to the origin of, of monetary and fiscal abuse. That's as simple as that. If you have an artificial setting, eventually things, things will pay out. And the guys that abused it the most will pay for it. And the guys that are on a relative basis uh, stronger, like is the case in the U.S., uh, would benefit. Yeah, it's, um, you mentioned the U.K., um, so let's do that one quickly as well. And, and you know, not ironically, but two of the oldest central b- banks on, on the face of the earth, the Bank of England and the BOJ, had both panicked last, in the last year. Uh, but it was after their currencies crashed, right? We had the British pound went from a buck 42 to 107. That's a 25% collapse. I mean, that's one of the, again, alongside the end, that all happened at the same time. And now, oh, it stopped. Everything's fine. Uh, not on my signal, it's not. The, actually, the last week was a terrible week for the pound, and it came in conjunction with still like all-time highs that you know, in shop prices or how, how they're defining inflation. So the inflation's not nearly coming down fast enough. The consumer is strapped. Their currency's weakening. This is the same thing again and again and again. And am I putting words in your mouth saying, no, this is exactly what should happen. The pound should weaken again and continue to break down. And then they have another conniption, no matter who's you know, sitting um, you know, sitting in the seat from a prime minister's perspective, because they just can't get rid of their economic problem. The only way that they think about solving it is through through, through monetary easing and or 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 some kind of uh, money printing. No, I I would agree. I think the situation in in the UK again, it's to what extent is self self inflicted. I I actually moved to the UK. I'm uh, I'm speaking to you from the oh, UK. You we have a, a yeah, Quadriga and 36 South. We've we've joined forces, so we have a two billion dollar. Uh, vol, vol fund, which oh, is good. very exciting, and uh, and I think when you look at the UK, um, it's um, it's fascinating. I think it's worth touching on on strikes, yeah. <laughs> which is sort of the day to day here, and this is yet another manifestation of uh, these structural issues. They're they're not random, just like you know geopolitics or, or others. And I'll give you an example, and this is not quite in uh, in the UK, but I think it's uh, it, it explains the dynamic. I was in a in a conference uh, presenting along Jer- Jeremy Grantham the other day in New York, and and you know I I, I have a, a coffee you know downstairs with my 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 amigos, and uh, and, and a coffee and a croissant was seventeen US dollars, which you know uh, <laughs> midtown that, that that was quite something. But wow. then I took a I, I took a taxi from midtown down to Wall Street, okay, which was some good uh, 25, 30 minutes, and that was fifteen dollars. And I was like, I looked at myself and I said, oh, my God. And you know, the difference between the, 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 the driver and the coffee guy is that the taxi driver had a lock in his uh, meter. Car, you know, the other guy could actually wipe the coffee and say, now this is $20 now. Yeah. So the, the people that have locks in their salary, in their income, these are the guys that go for strikes. Of course, you go for strike. You know, it doesn't make sense to me that the, the, the coffee seemed expensive the, on a relative basis. The taxi drive for 30 minutes look, look cheap. And I think when you think about the teachers or the, or the, the you know, whatever you want, uh, the railway guys, they, you know, this is just us being squeezed by these locks, you know, this. And so this becomes very structural. And Spain, we just had, you know, 8% increase in, in, in government. So I think the UK uh, with Brexit and, and many other issues has in some ways is suffering from some, some yet another source of structural inflation, which is bad news 
you know, for growth is bad news for is the bad type of inflation. And so uh, if you ask me, you know, do I think the, the sterling has uh, was the risk reward from here? I would agree with you. I think the, you know, uh, cable um, versus the dollar, in my view, is is, um, is is an interesting risk reward to play from 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 the long dollar side. Uh, but yeah, there are plenty of challenges, uh, notwithstanding the monetary and, and, and fiscal that you painted. And, and I think it was a wake up call, you know, to this, uh, again, monetary and fiscal abuse and, and the hidden risk and hidden leverage in the system. In this case, came through LDI and they had to come to the rescue. Yep. Uh, I, I wonder, you know, how much more there's in so many other hidden pockets that we will get to find out as and when the vol and correlations and liquidity goes. But it is, uh, you know, quite likely that there's plenty of other pockets that are, you know, uh, waiting to be discovered. Well, any anywhere that we have, I mean, so getting to that third part, and lo and behold, we have spoken for 30 minutes with, you know, staying with his framework on the new paradigm, the three different things. Um, but on, you know, what happened in LDI or what happened at the, you know, with the Bank of Japan panicking and changing, you know, the level, how about the entire, you know, pension system or family office system of illiquid alts or illiquid investments that are still not marked to market? Um, any incremental investment in these types of strategies now has to assume much higher levels of inflation and higher costs of capital and tighter requirements of capital. Like when you think of that third wheel, I mean, that's that's the one that has all the nonlinearity, the, the high risks associated with this. Um, real estate, obviously, we've seen uh, massive uh, liquidity issues from both uh, KKR and Blackstone here in the U.S. that they're outright denying exist, which is bullshit. But um, then a couple days later, you know, Blackstone says something different than what they said on the call. But these issues aren't going away, man. I mean, these are these are issues that are long term plugged into the system uh, as a function of inflation going down, cost of capital going down, ease of acquiring capital going up. I agree. I think you've pointed out to, you know, two or three obvious sectors that, uh, you know, have benefited greatly from a, a, a paradigm of, you know, artificial low interest rates, uh, inflation, etc. Um, I think it's uh, all of them are very interesting. If we started out with the illiquid stuff, um, yeah, I think people find it very convenient you know, to hide away from uh, from from those mark to market volatilities and how much leverage. We'll see how it plays out, but uh, there are, you know, uh, like always, almost in the real estate uh, case as well. I think this change of paradigm, you know, from level one to level two, from transitioning from nominal to to real, and, and what it means, and and the risk of, you know, uh, significant slowdowns, and in some ways, it's it's consistent with this view of of very extreme volatility. Uh, you might well see. Uh, let's say rates eventually pricking, you know, some of the the steam of the of the real estate market, but you know the problem is so huge that uh, mommy and daddy will, you know, have to respond to it in some ways, which effectively will end up printing and supporting certain markets in a way that, over the medium longer term, uh, when you think about them in real terms, uh, they are actually good investments. So. This volatility of, you know, what could happen in the short term, think about, you know, oil or real estate or others that collapse. But if it's not a normal cycle, you know, how do we respond to this? How big is the hole? How systemic could it be? We don't know yet. But what do we do to prevent these things from imploding? I think what we need to do will lead to inflation, which effectively 
it's supportive in the long term. So in some ways, uh, this this is going to be a volatile ride. I think you have to embrace volatility. You can't fight it. This, this environment, I think this is one of the key things from an investor's perspective is there's no crystal ball. This thing is going to be all over the place. I have no idea where things are going to be. All I know is going to be volatile, inflationary. Uh, that's my view. And even if even even on inflation, we know that it will, will remain volatile as well. So it's this process of, you know, remember goalkeepers and, and strikers, you know, where you are rebalancing your portfolio, embracing that volatility and why, you know, if you think about the two assets in isolation, what they bring you in, in uh, a, as individual players of the team, what matters here is how they rebalance, how they compound and how embracing volatility can actually result in, in substantially uh, higher risk adjusted return. So I think the implications for portfolio, you know, we tend to think in, in isolation of many of these assets, it's how about the team? How does the team play? And I think this new paradigm, you know, you have to embrace volatility. You have to effectively know that these melt-ups are part of the game. You will have the others. And, and I think this is something very important to understand because most investors, it's not something the naked eye sees. You see what asset one did, what asset B did, but but what is the effect of the portfolio when you actually embrace that rebalancing? You take profits on their way up and buy and and, and similarly. So but keeping those portfolios, I think it's a huge source of incremental return that you get through negatively correlated alpha, through negative correlation. And I think this is uh, the investors might think, what does this mean for me? You know, when I when I look at the, the portfolios, I think it's it's uh, a, a, an environment where we have to be uh, embracing this this volatility as something structural is part of where, where where we are. You know what? Like people, um, in particular now, because they're cocksure uh, of themselves after you know five weeks of the opposite happening versus what happened last year. <laughs> you know, you come into the year, oh, you know, I don't need to serve currency vol, equity vol, fixed income vol, and we get the biggest spikes in well in the move index on just using you know basic rates vol that um, most people had ever seen. Okay. So that's, and Eric, I think you could show it in terms of the updates on that. I mean, all we've had recently, current cross-asset class vol, all it's done is it's corrected to a big higher low. So it's setting up, and, and, and in the meantime, people who are talking about the five, what's happened in the last five weeks are back to saying, aha, Diego, you're an idiot. You know, all I do is sell vol my whole career. I'm the man. Yeah. And a lot of people have made their career, particularly on the sell side, doing that. Because uh, a, they don't have a you know, skin in the game, and b, they just you know they're just dealers selling vol. Um, so you know you're an idiot, I'm an idiot, because now volatility goes down, and yeah, we either are. There's a very you know, always a very good chance that I'm at least an idiot, but um, or you're at the sp specific part in the cycle where volatility has stabilizes at a higher low and takes off again. Now I have some I have some empirical thoughts on that, but I just want to get your response first. No, look, volatility is a, an anti-bubble, right? It's a textbook. And, and if you think about it, it's, if you think about volatility uh, as, as insurance, right? One of the uh, ironies of finance is that uh, financial insurance tends to be cheapest when you need it the most. So it's the environment when the equity market is high, complacency is high, implied volatility is low, that you can actually load up. And so I think beyond the I'm an idiot or you are or next month <laughs> is the, the opposite. 
to me is this, uh, you know, relentless dynamic of the crystal ball effect, right? Everybody thinks they know what's coming and I need to be back to the football analogy would be the stupidity of the coach thinking, look, minute 17, the ball's going to be there and then I only need strikers and then in the second half is... No, <laughs> the, whole point is, the whole point is the coach has no idea where the ball is going to be, okay? But what he knows is if the ball is up there, he has strikers, he has midfielders, defenders and goalkeepers. Is the power of the team, is, you know, is the power of effectively rebalancing. And having played the last decade only with strikers... Because, you know, the referee, the central bank footman, every time they, they whistle offside, this, this match is open. This match is two-way and it will be all over the place. So, no, I don't think we're idiots whatsoever. On the contrary, you want to, in some ways, rebalancing and the strategies that, that we run that combine, you know, protecting stuff with, with uh, risk assets. What it does is it behaves like, you know, it takes emotion away from the process because what happens if you're buying insurance in the markets you're buying puts you know or or whichever other form it tends to happen that you run the program eventually you give up and it's at that point of capitulation when you probably needed it the most so in reality what you want is a process that can help you make the right decision and what it is is when equity markets are high and implied volatility is low you accumulate insurance Financed by taking profits on those assets. Yeah. And what's the whole point of owning insurance? We don't own insurance for the sake of owning insurance. We <laughs> want to make money on it. But you want to monetize your insurance and buy distressed assets. And you do that over and over and over and over. If at the end of the match, you know, you're trying to give attribution to who, who passed the ball, who recovered the ball, who scored the goal, who did the save, it's a team effort. And the point I was making earlier is that when you look in isolation at the players, you might get a distorted picture of what the team did because this is about embracing that is the team effort. And I think in this current environment is more valuable than ever. So volatility cheap, you accumulate volatility expensive or insurance, you monetize and you add distress assets and you, you do that over the cycle and you will generate substantial incremental returns. Whether you do that by, you know, by yourself trying to play the pieces, extremely difficult, extremely painful, if you actually do it in a in a in a more packaged way as a team, that that will do the right behavior, and that's things that we try to help investor base because it's 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 not obvious. A, you know, how much insurance should I own? Uh, what do I sell to fund it? You know, what do I buy? When do I take profits? And so this is where I think the the volatility space and the insurance space is it requires you know it's, it's not an easy game just like being a goalkeeper <laughs> is, a, is a very difficult game but it's, but it's very very important for the team so i think again the education around volatility and what it means in terms of embracing it and monetizing it uh it means that that time when you're being called an idiot it might be you know a, a good leading <laughs> indicator or a good leading indica indicator for for when you know some of this value and it's the opposite it's the times of panic yeah. when you want less emotional and just sell that and, and buy. And it's not a crystal ball effect. You do it, you know, in a, in a system and that actually makes the team better. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you play the game incrementally. You got to read and react to the game. That's an excellent, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a good reminder and a teaching by a practitioner. Whereas you hear a lot of people in theory talk about strategy and whatnot. Obviously the guy's running money and he's running, you know, vol this, not a lot of people do that. If, if you have, like just staying with this, if you actually have a high probability event that we're going to get into the 90th minute of the match and we're down two to one, 
then we know what we're going to have to do in that situation. So the way that I've best tried to describe it is before that happens, like once you get through, I call them three phases of a bear market, but we've had phase one, that was at this time last year when the VIX went to 35. We had phase two in October, that's when the VIX went to 35. You know, and we're just talking about equity vol, which is what people would understand. But once yeah. everyone agrees to agree, Diego, that it's going to be a soft landing, it's not, we're not going to be two, down two to one at the 90th minute. Because it's the 80th minute, and it's one to one. And, but, it, but if I'm Canada and you're Spain, I know that that's not a good one one. Like, it's probably, we could be down two to one really quickly. So, you know, but the, the, this is actually the history going into recessions is that volatility gets suppressed because, oh, recession means the Fed's going to stop or they're going to give us the cowbell. They're going to give us the 90th minute. The game's going to be over. But what actually happens, guys, show on, on slide 40, you can see that. The number of days that the S&P has been down, but the VIX has been down, goes up a lot. Then all of a sudden, bang, Spain scores, flip the slide to slide 41. And when you're actually in a recession, Diego, like now yeah. we're down two to one and it's still Spain against Canada. And I'm Canada. I'm like, oh, my, I'm not I'm probably not going to score here. This is this is a real problem. <laughs> so what you see here is the, the, going into July 1990, March obviously 01, heading into the recession, December 07, and 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 February 2020. Then then once you're actually in it, you're you know you're going to lose money at the corporate level. You know GDP is going to be negative. Then the behavior goes back to oh oh boy, I need to be long volatility. To me, this is one of the most interesting things because obviously I have some pretty explicit timing on when this happens, like T minus two to three months. <laughs> uh, look, I think you brought a lot of very important points there. And I think, you know, uh, the, the issue with insurance is that uh, financial insurance is it's also the risk premium aspect. So what, yes. what for those for those who are not familiar, you know, uh, if, if someone wants to buy insurance and I'm selling it, then you know, you want to sleep at night, of course, uh, maybe I need to stay up, you know, someone pays somebody for something, right? And and one of the challenges we face in financial insurance is that uh, th there is that, that risk transfer that, you know, uh, when you play the VIX, you might have a very steep contango in the futures, you may have an elevated vol of vol, you have significant skewness. So when you actually become, you know, you're practically as a retail guy or somebody trying to play uh, the VIX, it's and, and back to your point on recession. It's also what are the what are the odds, you know, that I'm getting for these markets. And I think part of the difficulty in many of the uh, people that are looking to to, to play the uh, the insurance game is is you know is very difficult for them to grasp the risk premium and that negative risk premium. And, and, and you need to get the timing very right, otherwise you're bleeding and the your permanent loss of capital. So thinking about loosely about no, just buy volatility. Uh, it's it's actually more, a bit more complicated than that. I mean, the, the way I think about it is much more in premium terms. You know, mm -hmm. I think you spend premium. You know, one dollar in S and P puts competes with a dollar in in VIX calls, competes with a you know call on dollar or put on China or whatever you want. And that exercise of how do I allocate my premium, which one is the best defender? It's um, it's a very uh, you know there's a lot of science, a lot of art, but ultimately. It's also about understanding the, the, the risk premium. And I think the, the, the VIX has been a, a, an extraordinarily difficult uh, underlying to play. Uh, in, in, and it highlighted um, also one of the big basis risks that happens. You know, if you were long S&P and were hedging it by being long the VIX, 
you got a double whammy. You lost mm -hmm. on the effectively on the S and P going down, and 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 vol didn't actually reprice higher. In fact, you have this negative carry, so you get the double whammy of these things. And and in some ways, you know, you almost lose respect for some of these dynamics. People might be, uh, you know, selling vol aggressively, and these things eventually can can explode. But it is it is um. Uh, you know, the buying the insurance and in, in its understanding, you know, or, or being able to, to be, you know, disciplined about what to buy and, and when to buy in these programs is not, is not easy. And, no, uh, no. and I think the, the challenge, again, of confusing volatility with, with insurance, you know, I, I, whoever's listening and interested, I think it's always very important to understand your worst case scenario. And, and, and that's why I strongly recommend people, you know, buy options rather than sell them. The asymmetry in, in general, at least, you know, your, your worst case with 100% certainty based with the premium at risk and, and, and try to understand that basis risk of what it means and what am I trying to hedge and what's my budget. And, and, and yeah, I think to the extent that you, you know, uh, you, you can actually do that by it's not easy, it's not cheap. But, uh, but yeah, I think the, the discussion we're having relates to this process that uh, you're trying to build a team and, and, and accumulate during the periods of, of complacency and monetizing the periods of distress. And this is something that works now and will work in the future, regardless of the crystal ball or the indicators or anything else. This is how the team is you know, designed to work and how it will work. Or anything else, I think, becomes just too tactical. And, and, and if you're too aggressive, taking the wrong side of risks and open-ended risk, uh, you will invariably blow up. So I think we need to be that education side of, of, of uh, finance, I think with, uh, you know, needs to, to, to stress in my view, this, this um, uh, risk reward of also on the insurance side. That's an excellent explanation. And, and uh, we're going to go to some questions here from, uh, from the audience, but you know, I, I try every single day, Diego, I try to show people that, you know, because again, through the relationship between realized vol and implied vol, because there's always a different price for that insurance. I mean, when Tesla was going down every single day into the end of the year and it went to $99, massive implied vol premium. You know, now the stock rallies has got a massive implied vol discount. I mean, we have that. We try to show that every single day. And the most important thing to do is to do it every single day. Right. So we have to go to the practice field. We have to run. And then we're going to run again, and we're going to run again, and we're going to run again. And when something changes, we're all going to notice. And that's what Mandelbrot taught me, which is there's a particular point in the game where there's a particular thing to pay attention to, where there's a particular advantage or a price you know, in, in, in vol space where, where you, you are really uh, taking, making a good decision, especially if you keep making these decisions over and over for a whole career like you have. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to get people to look at markets that way instead of simple moving averages. Yeah, I, I think on that stuff, you know, when you think about volatility, it's it gives you a lot of good info in general. Yeah. As you as you described, you know, volatility markets are giving you a sense of probability distributions and skew and and risk. And as you well noted, you know, the correlation to price can indicate, you know, what's been driving the market. Is it speculative cold buying? Is is people relentlessly selling? But beyond that, I think there's another angle as well, which is also double-edged sword, is people, uh, I use the analogy that, uh, you know, volatility is a bit like the speedometer of the, mar the markets, right? You could be driving your car at 300 miles an hour or whatever stupid thing, and uh, the speedometer says 80, right? So you, if you ever had an accident, 
right? What are you going to feel? You're obviously going to feel the real speed you were running, regardless of what the speedometer said. Well, guess what? Sometimes the markets, the realized volatility of the market uh, gives you a wrong impression of the risk you're taking. Yes. Right. So the, the realized volatility, you don't have that feeling, those bumps here in this, you know, very smooth ride. But the reality is that you're going at the speed you're going. And so ex ante, you know, sometimes the and this is why artificially low volatility, suppressed volatility is so dangerous, you know, and artificially low correlations, because effectively they lead to hidden leverage. You don't realize you were running so much risk because the speedometer of the markets, the volatility was effectively giving you the wrong impression. And it's only when, boom, things go completely crazy and crash, not only in the vol, but also on the on the correlation that the risk goes exponentially. And this feeds on itself through forced liquidation, liquidity. And this is why, you know, the the anatomy of a, you know, the, the, the chronicle of a crisis foretold, you know, once you go from go from laminar regime to turbulent regime, once volatility explodes above certain levels, these dynamics change and unfold into crises that are very, very predictable. And these are things that we as professionals start to exploit to accumulate those things that effectively become uh, exponential insurance payouts, uh, you know, not just through volatility, but also through correlation as this, these events happen. But it's very, very important that people don't get fooled by artificially low volatility. And in fact, they take advantage of that artificial low volatility to protect themselves rather than be trapped by it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why if I was an asset allocator, I mean, your strategy is perfect against the herd, which does the opposite, right? And you're going to you're going to be there, you know, um, well, everyone's going to be beating Canada. Uh, I mean, the men's team. <laughs> but it's gonna... They're very good, actually. They're, those <laughs> yeah. guys are very good. Yeah, I, they, I did, was, they uh... had a tough Olympics. They had a tough bracket. But, they, you know, the, the, the women, you know, they beat the U.S., you know, and, and that's something else. But anyway. Um, the guys are good. Uh, well, take some. They're getting better. They're definitely getting better. I appreciate their... Uh, their their most recent um, successes. Uh, I'll, I'll get uh, some questions here. Uh, I'm, I could put a, a a big blanket over this one. Uh, James has the uh, highest voted one, but he's asking uh, you to provide an update on gold. Oh, very interesting. Gold, gold is um, my my view is, uh, and the way we've been playing it is, uh, I actually believe at some point uh, you're going to see gold higher, dollar higher. So that correlation, I think, breaks. Um, but I think gold, like like real estate or certain other markets, even if it's a real asset, the, the challenge with some real assets that might be quite levered at some point. So if you think about, I don't know, for the lack of a better uh, example, let's say real estate in Miami, right? Yeah, you're buying a real estate and it's physical and that gives you a good hedge against, uh, let's say, inflation. But if the market was extraordinarily levered, if people have taken a lot of debt and then a crisis comes, you can forget about the fact that it's a real asset because it behaves like a financial asset mm -hmm. uh, because ultimately it's a distress. So the positioning on gold the, you know, will distort its, its, uh, its nature of, of physicality and many of its attributes. But I think you know, I, I remain, I like gold medium long term. I, I actually like it uh, under both a strong dollar and uh, and and and, uh, and under certain conditions, uh, you know, uh, I think they, that correlation can break. If you think about how it's moving today, it's almost just one by one. Yeah, no. You know, being, being long gold, people understand it's being short the dollar. Well, not necessarily. You know, in fact, we have a, a ton of 
uh, interesting payoffs that play gold higher, dollar higher, you know, yeah. through particularly against markets like China or others that, you know. So I think the, uh, the, the gold market is um, in an interesting place, a medium long term bullish. It's going to be volatile, but I think it's one of the beneficiaries of, of the global dynamics that we're, we're discussing. If you conditional factoring again, if you were to use my model, if we're full blown recession, quad four, it's dollar up, gold up, um, and that that ends yeah. up being the new correlation. So, uh, yeah. and that's back tested across all of um, modern economic history. So, there's that. Uh, here, here's a good um, here's a good question from my friend Robert McGrory, who's getting votes. Um, one of my favorite analogies of yours is the concept of building a portfolio, Diego, like you do a soccer or football team. Can you expand on some of the inventory you're currently using as your strikers or your defenders at the moment? Yeah, very important because if you think about portfolio construction using this um, idea of, of strikers, midfielders, defenders, goalkeepers, uh, this I think this is this is one dimension of how you build your team. You need to be uh, effectively what it's telling you is, look, I don't have a crystal ball. You're going to need things that you know uh, make money in risk on markets. You're going to need things that behave, uh, you know, and defend your portfolio. And so the general idea, be, you know, with the uh, striker, midfielder, defender, uh, goalkeeper is the idea that you want to embrace volatility, embrace compounding. The, the second dimension that I think is critical to understand in the model is that is inflation. Not all strikers are the same, not all midfielders are the same, not all goalkeepers or defenders are the same. So let's look at the strikers first. Generally, you would argue, let's assume we have equities and credit. Okay, so you need to differentiate between strikers that are long inflation, some sort of long bias, and others that are short inflation. Mm -hmm. So if you think about cash or credit or fixed income, I'm going to create Keith, I'm going to pay you back 100 euros or $100 in 30 years. Obviously, cash, credit and fixed income are short inflation, because if inflation goes up, then those 30 those $100 are not going to buy you much. In, in, in 30 years. The question now it's pretty clear of in some ways what you might need to avoid in a high inflationary environment uh, on a sustained one. The duration effect and how much they protect in the short term is different, but in the long term, these guys are short uh, inflation. Um, the problem is how, how do you play on the long side? Are equities, all equities necessarily longer inflation? The answer is no, it depends. And this depends on your ability, you know, if you're a baker, and you basically buy wheat to sell bread, the question is, how does the price of wheat move? And can I pass effectively that to my to, to people in the form of bread? Or am I effectively being squeezed? So I think when you think about strikers, it all revolves back down to, in my opinion, what do we think about inflation? But in my view, that inflation will be sticky and high. Um, you want to basically have strikers, midfielders, defenders, goalkeepers that are have a long inflation bias. And that means on the equity side, you want to look for uh, basically assets that can protect their margins. They have the, the, you know, uh, the ability to control the pass on the price and control the, the input cost. Uh, when you think about the, the midfielders, I'd say, you know, I, so I would prefer certain equity to, to other equity or credit. I prefer real estate to, to cash. I would prefer gold and volatility to fixed income. And, and I think this is the second dimension that is critically important uh, when you think about building the team. It's not just about embracing the vol, it's how uh, you know, those players are uh, also from a volatility perspective. 
<laughs> from an inflation inflation perspective. Sorry. That's awesome. Uh, well, I think we're actually right up right up to one minute left in the game, you know, and it is Spain two, <laughs> Spain two, <laughs> Canada one. Uh, but I, so I I really uh, I really appreciate your time and and just you know the consistency. I appreciate. As everyone here knows, I appreciate process, discipline, process, discipline, more so than most things. I mean, if we just take away, you know, how nice of a guy you are and, and all that, we still have to have a discipline uh, process that's repeatable. And uh, of all the people that I've had uh, had real conversations with, uh, you are easily one of the most consistent when it comes to those things and um i hope your i hope your investors appreciate it congratulations on your on your uh your new partnership there in london that's one of my favorite favorite places in the world look forward to seeing you here but uh no look i, I thank you so much i i think process is 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 critical uh, whoever thinks this is a game of having a crystal ball I think uh, doesn't really necessarily understand the game that well. It's it's really about the power of the team and and having those those you know big big calls in terms of your quads and where we are in the big picture. And I think the reason we we might be more or less consistent is because we also keep this really big picture about you know where we're going and and you can be tactical about it, but I think keeping that big picture of what's really happening here are we really just solving problems by printing money and debt or not and and so I think you can easily otherwise get uh, fooled and, and taken aback. But I, I again, this long-term picture is totally consistent and, and compatible with many other ways of of, uh, of doing things, and that's I think the beauty of the team and the and the portfolio. The beauty of the team. Well, thank you, Diego. Appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, guys. He's Diego Paria. Like, how good is that guy? I mean, again and again and again, I cannot emphasize how powerful it is to have a process and have somebody who has experience with their process. That guy's got all that. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Real Conversations brought to you by Hedgeye. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye is not responsible for errors and accuracies or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.